0: Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. So please let yourself um, get settled in a way that's comfortable and listen. Listening to teachings is a kind of a reflection or a meditation practice. There's no quiz at the end, no exam. You've already passed. Um, But rather you kind of let yourself listen and sense what's true in your own heart, what resonates for you, what reminds you of something of value. And the other things that don't, that don't resonate, just let them go by you know, or put them on the shelf or whatever you do with them. Um, so that you take it in a certain way as a kind of practice. Um, and the practice is really the practice of, of a deeper listening, not just to these words or teachings, um, but um, looking into your own heart and your own mind. So sit comfortably. And this evening, I'd lo- especially since um, the signs of spring are here. Oh, thank you. In California, the plum blossoms are out in many places. And um, although we need rain, please, who's ever up there? The rain gods. Um, the, the, the sense of spring, which comes early in California, is a really beautiful one. As I said, you can see the light turning. Um, and so I want to talk about um our practice of mindfulness, compassion, meditation, these things um, as a, a gardening practice, as a gardening of the of the heart. Um, and of course, this has been a difficult week in the news. There have been a lot of them, but this is one of them with the school shooting with the uh, failure to solve any of the problems of immigration for the DREAMers or other people. Um, And as most of you are aware, this is President's Day. Um, I think about going to the Lincoln Memorial, which is one of my favorite places in Washington. And it calls itself a temple. It says, in this great temple are the words and the memory of this. Man, it's like a Greek temple. And there, carved in the stone, are the words, after the Civil War, which was such a horrendous uh, trauma for the entire country, with malice toward none and charity toward all. That is the presidential leadership. That is a um, an expression of what it means to bring people together, like Emma Lazarus on the Statue of Liberty: "Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free." There is in in uh, in our history, and I feel it in our bones and in our consciousness. Um, the understanding of what wise leadership looks like. And sometimes we get it, sometimes we don't, and often it's kind of mixed. And I'm not going to presume the politics of everyone in this room. People have all different kind of political views. Um, But what I do know is that amidst gun violence, amidst continuing warfare and racism and the kind of Um, sufferings that we see in the world there are also even during the course of this evening talk a billion acts of kindness that don't get featured in the news Um, and I remember when I was doing some peace work in Palestine and Israel some years ago what struck me was how many groups and I met with a number the Gandhian peace group nonviolent peace group that was growing in Palestine the the former combatants for peace the bereaved mothers the the sulka that was bringing together teenagers from Palestine and Israel that there were you know a couple of hundred of amazing groups doing things that you never mm-hmm. hear about all you hear about is if somebody throws a you know a hand grenade or or some terrorist attack or someone getting shot Um, And the news is kind of a race to the bottom of the brain stem, basically. Let's try and scare people, and then they'll be frightened and they'll vote for us. It's more or less how politics seems to work. Um, But it's not what President's Day celebrates. I think we have it. I think, didn't it, sort of combining Lincoln and Washington stuff from my childhood. We used to have separate President's Days, remember. Um, It is... um, really a celebration of human possibility. And for us, no matter what happens outside, that is what we have to carry as a vision and a possibility in our hearts. Now here's the paradox. As human beings, we are made of stars, and we're made of mud. And we carry all of these possibilities within us. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said, you're perfect just as you are. And there is still room for improvement, right? <laughs> and part of what we need to understand is how to cherish ourselves and how to be real with ourselves in life as it is. And at the same time also understand in this paradoxical way that there is still greater possibilities for each of us and for the collective of compassion, connection, understanding, and so forth. And we all know this, you know, in the kind of Buddhist language, they talk about sudden and gradual enlightenment. Um, Maybe we'll get to enlightenment tonight, maybe we won't, but let's just call it sudden and gradual awakening. And we've all had it, actually. Walking in the mountains, or entering a great cathedral, or hearing an extraordinary piece of music, or making love, or being with someone as they're giving birth, or giving birth yourself, that mystery, or sitting at the bedside of someone as they die, you know, and the spirit leaves the body. It's And the, the gates between the worlds open up, and you wonder, what is this human incarnation that lasts for a time and then is gone like that? Um or you're standing by the Grand Canyon or you've taken some sacred medicine. There are a hundred ways that we've touched this, making love, where we step out of the small sense of self, what's called the body of fear, the separateness, and feel ourselves truthfully to be part of something so much greater, which is the energy that gave life to us and is the turning of the galaxies and the stars. Because that's what we are. We come from this. And yes, we have to tend this separateness, as Ramdas likes to say, You have to remember your Buddha nature and your social security number. There's some kind of you know paradox thing that you have to kind of work with. Um, but there's also a timeless reality, the ever-present, eternal in which we live. The question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. What does it mean to live in mystery rather than just have your list and check off the to-do things that you have to shop and buy or complete or you know turn in or send or get or whatever it is. Those are all fine things. But if that's all that makes up our life, something profound is missing and something that nourishes us. So we all know this somehow. And in some way, entering a spiritual practice, meditation, mindfulness, loving kindness, compassion practice, are really gateways to open us to that which is bigger than ourselves. Our connection with all life, our sense of that mystery that we can rest in, of that which is timeless. And, you know, it's a beautiful thing to watch Um, when I go up to visit the two-month retreat, um, but even a week-long or 10-day retreat, people get younger. You know, we talk about as the Vipassana facelift, basically. By the end of 10 days or so, people come in and they're tired and they're haggard and they did a lot in order to make their week or 10 days or whatever it is free, And then you start to see their brows clear and their eyes are brighter and they're walking around and they take time to look at the flowers and smell the spring air. And it's as if their vitality and their beauty and their youth starts to shine again because they've stopped and slowed down and tended themselves with loving awareness, their own body and breath. And in doing so, they've opened themselves to these other dimensions of which is what we are. Um, And anything important or good that we do has to be connected with that, what we are. You could call it love, or mystery, or consciousness, uh, interbeing. It's a beautiful thing. And so when we come and sit in meditation, it isn't so much to have a good meditation, because you get everything in there, that's what happens. You sit down and you get your own mind. And as I like to joke from my friend, Annie Lamotte, she says, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. So you come (laughs) with other people, right? You get it all. um, But the point isn't the particular experience. The point is to get bigger than being caught in those things that come. Your fears and longings and hopes and, you know, all those things that you become the witnessing of it the place of loving awareness of compassion that says yes this and even more you open yourself um, so that you can live with love for yourself and others because in the end what matters so there's the sudden awakening but the other image that's used is gradual awakening um and here you sit you know and there's the monkey mind, some of you may have noticed that, you know, or the tension in your body, or um, all the stories that get told, or um, all those other kinds of things that arise. And the question is, here we are in this human incarnation, I don't know how you got in there, but you're here, and you're sitting here with it. How do you respond to all this stuff? So... A story in the early days of the Buddha's teaching. He went out with his alms bowl and approached an area that was owned by a wealthy Brahmin that was being plowed in the spring plowing. And the, the wealthy brahman was distributing food to all the workers. And when he saw the Buddha come with his alms bowl, he said, "Ah, He said, I, oh monk, I plow and sow, and work, and having plowed and sown, then I eat. Why don't you, or, you know, in the Victorian translation, do you likewise plow and sow, and having plowed and sow, do you eat? So he's sort of challenging him, like, come on, you're a mendicant, get with the program and do something worthwhile. And the Buddha says, I also, Brahman, plow and sow, and having done so, I eat. And the Brahman says, you claim yourself a plowman, but I see no plow. Tell me, what kind of plowing is it you do? And the Buddha replied, trust or faith is the seed. Compassion, the rain. Wakefulness is my plow and yoke. Conscience, my guide. And my mind is the harness. Clarity is the plow blade. And well-guarded in action and speech, I use truth, truth to weed, and cultivate release. And wise effort is my oxen drawing the plow steadily toward freedom of heart that which can never be regretted. And uh, he does this little kind of poem in response. And this bears the fruit of of liberation. And then the Brahmin says, ah, then let the venerable monk eat. You are indeed a plowman. Somehow he convinces him. Now there's a there's an interesting end to the story because um, the Brahmin in this story anyway takes a, a pitcher of milk rice to pour it, pour it into the alms bowl of the Buddha. And as it pours into the bowl, it hisses with steam and, and uh, won't stay in the bowl. And of course these stories are both literal stories but they're also metaphors, they're mythological stories. And so you can listen to them in a different way. Why would it hiss and steam? If any of you have ever had the joy of being in a field that's been plowed and touching the plow blade after it's cut a long furrow through the field, it gets very hot. The iron gets really hot. And so here's the Buddha's alms bowl. You want to give me something? Let me show you something, dude. You know, pour in the milk rice. The 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 plow is still still hot from the inner work that I've done. So that's the that's the story. But it's a beautiful story um, because following Suzuki Roshi, yes, you're perfect the way you are, and there's still room for improvement. It really speaks about the seeds that we plant, and having tended them, the with wise effort as the oxen and the you know the rain of compassion, that beautiful fruit will come, the fruit of freedom of heart, the fruit of well-being. This is Thich Nhat Han's way of describing it. Your mind is like a piece of earth planted with many different kinds of seeds. Sometimes he talks about it as storehouse consciousness with all the different possibilities, archetypal seeds in it. And in this Peace of earth with different seeds, there are seeds of joy, of peace, of mindfulness and understanding and love. There are seeds of craving, of anger, of fear, hate and forgetfulness. The healthy seeds and the unhealthy seeds are always there, sleeping in the soil of your mind and heart. The quality of your life depends on the seeds that you water. If you plant tomato seeds in your garden, tomatoes will grow. Just so if you water a seed of peace in your heart and mind, peace will grow. When the seeds of happiness in you are watered, you become happy. When the seed of anger is watered, you will become angry. The seeds that are watered frequently are those that will grow strong. So this is really um, an instruction that's gone down now for 2,600 years. From the Buddhist image to the teaching of Thich Han, of what it means to begin to tend the garden of our own heart and in our own life. Because nobody else can tend it for you as you probably have noticed, you know. They try online, but it just doesn't work, you know. Hmm. Now what happens when you tend the garden of the heart, when you look into what seeds am I watering and what am I planting and, and so forth, um, is that um, as you begin to practice what's called um, apamada or um, presence, not being lost when you become more present, um, first of all, things start to change in a beautiful way And, you know, modern neuroscience talks about how even in six or eight weeks of training the mind in meditation and the heart, um, there are measurable changes in the telomeres at the caps on the end of chromosomes and epigenetic changes and changes in, you know, um, brain structure and so forth, things like that. Um, and there's, there's all these kind of scientific ways of talking about it, um, But basically what happens is that you become present for your experience, um, and you relate to it in a different way. You don't just get lost in it. You don't, when anger comes, you don't just water the anger and get lost in it. And when longing comes, you don't just follow that story. That there grows instead a capacity for spaciousness, and perspective, and some peacefulness, you begin to water the seeds of peace and presence and mindfulness as you do, step by step. And step by step, in this part of the teaching, the gradual teaching, is the game. (laughs) My beloved friend and teacher, Mahagosananda, who was the Gandhi of Cambodia, nominated for the Nobel Prize a whole number of different times. Um, Even though he was a scholar who spoke 15 languages and so forth, after the Cambodian Khmer Rouge genocide, he led peace marches, peace walks, really, from all the refugee camps on the Thai border, which had hundreds of thousands, maybe a million people. He said, you can't go back to your villages where the temples were burned and the, you know, all the intellectuals were killed and almost, you know, half the population, no, it was probably a quarter of the population, um, died. Um, He said, you can't go back um, unless you reclaim the land with your own love and your heart. And so he would lead streams of a thousand people. He said, you can't go in a bus or the back of a truck with someone beating a drum and someone ringing a bell, singing the chant of loving kindness. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And they would recite it over and over and walk back to their villages, reclaiming the land through killing fields until they felt that they could again bring Plant the seeds of love in a a ground that had grown so barren. This is the game to make our life beautiful. You set a direction. You set the intention of your heart, which is the seeds of compassion, of wakefulness, of being present, of mindfulness. You plant those seeds. And then those seeds have a certain power to grow if you dedicate yourself to them. But the other thing that happens, and anyone who's ever gardened knows this obstacles will arise. <laughs> you know how it works, right? There are insects, there is drought, there's weeds that try and take it over, there's a very compacted soil and there's no aeration for it. Um, you know, I I don't need to take you in hand to the local nursery, but they would sort of read you the litany of things that you have to tend to to make the garden really blossom and bloom. And this is true in any enterprise. We do. You know it in parenting, in love relations, in business. You plant this, you say, I'm going to start a business. Let's say your business is your garden. And then you hit the obstacles, Right? not enough capital, key employee quits, the market changes, interest rates rise, competition becomes stiffer, the supplier gets bought up. All this stuff happens, you know. Anybody who's a business person, you know this. You set your direction, you plant your seeds, and then you tend the obstacles, and you keep going. In parenting, first they just want to put everything in their mouth, right? And hit each other with blocks, you know, and then they fall off their bicycles and You know, have injuries, and then you have to socialize them to play with each other, right? And then they have to go through middle school. Oh, my God. There's puberty and teenage unks, and then sexuality, and cars, and alcohol, and drugs, and independence. It's rough, right? For everybody, it's totally wonderful. I just couldn't be happier being a parent. And, yo, there's obstacles, right? Social change. The same kind of thing. You know, you look around and you say, this is crazy. We're solving our world problems of war. In kindergarten, when kids hit each other with blocks, you say, use your words, right? Why couldn't that go up a little bit to the adult level? You know, there's racism, which is insane. Let's see, what color are you? You're brown, you're pink, you're You know, I mean, give me a break. It makes no sense. There's children starving today, and they're grain elevators with food more than we know what to do with. And it's not, you know, 10% of what we spend in the world on military weapons, and we are the great military weapon supplier of the planet, would feed every hungry woman and child and man on the earth. What are we doing? So you say, all right, we have to do something about it. But when you try to do social change, what do you encounter? Political obstacles, doubts, financial problems, squabbles between, all the best activists, they fight with each other at certain times. Not all of them, but you know how it goes, right? Because they're activists in there. so you have to meet the obstacles and in love. It's the same. You know, you seem compatible at first. If you fall in love, it's just great. And then that little disappointment starts to creep in, the shadow side. Because you imagine them to be a certain way, and then it turns out that they're messier, or more irritable, or anxious, or judging, or controlling, or addicted, or whatever it is. And oh my God, I thought you were... Like this person, but I didn't realize I was getting the whole catastrophe, right? <laughs> hmm. And back to social change, let's talk about gun control for a moment. Um, you know, and being a country with more guns per capita than any other country in the world. Um, there, there has to be something sensible, and I think about the children, because I actually believe that what's happening now with the young people from Florida may, 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 may be a game changer. It's like the, the margins are the place where the real life lives, not in the center of the consciousness of the country, um, but it's the disenfranchised and the children and the elders and the people who've been kept out that actually still carry the possibility and the vision. A poem from my friend Jane Hirshfield in Mill Valley, great poet. She writes, the dead do not want us dead. Such petty errors are left for the living. Nor do they want our mourning. No gift to them, not rage, not weeping. Return one of them, any one of them to the earth. And look, such foolish skipping, such telling of bad jokes, such feasting even a cucumber, even a single sesame seed, a feast. You know, we, we have to treasure life and the life of our children more than our guns. We have to treasure this earth in ways that we haven't before. And yes, there are obstacles. Um, and that doesn't mean that we stop doing whatever we think is really right. So there we are, obstacles that come. And guess what? Your spiritual practice is basically a practice of, as you garden, working with the obstacles. And the first question is what are you going to devote yourself to? What are the seeds that you want to plant? If somebody said to you this year or this decade, would it be seeds of kindness? Would it be a peaceful heart? Would it be seeds of mindfulness? Seeds of compassion and care for yourself. Seeds of compassion and care for others around the world. What are the seeds you would plant? Seeds of love. What will you devote yourself to? And then, as you begin to meditate, which is like training wheels for living with some consciousness, your body tension and the You know, untamed mind and the unfinished business of the heart and the grief that you carry and the ocean of tears that make up human life because you're a human being and you carry a certain measure of the sorrows of the world, you know, and the radiance of your heart. All these things will arise. And what do you do with them? Just as the water jar is filled drop by drop, so let those who are wise fill themselves moment by moment, with goodness. This is from the Buddha. And the goodness is, no matter what arises, can you meet it with compassion? No matter what arises, can you become spacious and peaceful and not so lost and caught up and reactive? Not because you're supposed to, not because it's a grim duty, but it's actually an invitation to return to your own Buddha nature, to who you really are. And what's important somehow in this is to stay connected with the seeds that you plant. As a farmer channels water to their land, so the wise ones direct their own heart and mind. Again, from the text of the Buddha. Um, this last week, I went to a uh, lecture at LMU in Los Angeles, at Loyola Marymount, given by a a friend and a really wonderful man named um, Father Greg Boyle, um, who's written a couple of bestsellers. And I can't commend his books to you enough. The Tattoos on the Heart is the first of them if you haven't read it. And he's the founder of Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles. And for 25 years or more, I don't know how long, 30 some years, He's been working with kids coming out of gangs. And so they have Homeboy Bakery and Homeboy Cafe and they have all kinds of services for the city, removing tagging and graffiti. They've got all kinds of businesses. But mostly what his work is is to tend the soul and the spirit of these young men and young women um, who in many cases don't really have um, a family or don't have a safe place to live. And so they join a gang, because that's what's there. But they also know that it's tremendously destructive. You know? And so he talks about it, and it's so much in his book. um, So I really, really recommend it to you. Um, Part of it, he kind of keeps notes of the kind of um, strange um, malaprops and language that some of his homies like to use. For example, um, you know, one of the young guys who'd, who'd been working him for a while, working with him for a while, and he sends out to talk about homeboy industry, came in one day and said, I'm really learning how to do public speaking, you know, you have to be, um, (laughs) (laughs) self-defecating. And Father Greg said, oh, that's something I've been meaning to practice, you know. Um, yeah, uh. Um, And um, he describes um, one day after working for a long time with a a whole group of young men who'd come in, tattooed and trying to figure out whether they would get out of the gangs or not. And some of them come and go, and it takes four, five, six, eight different times before they really can land um, at Homeboys. And he said, well, after a long day, another father and I finally went upstairs We were reading the paper and just having a quiet time and a cup of tea. And there's loud insistent knocking on the door and we kind of know who it is. It's this very insistent person who's um, homeless um, and difficult and comes around often needing stuff. And it's like, okay, after a day. And finally the other other, uh, father gets up and says, all right, I'll answer it. And he's there for like 20 minutes. And then he comes back. Father Greg's look looks up and says, so who was that? He said, it was uh, Jesus in his, um, in his least recognizable form. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So you've got to have humor about this for it to work. Um, yeah. Um, I- I'll read you one part from this book, because at all of the talks that he gives, and now he goes around the country talking about, really, the, the redemption that's possible for these young people. And if you go there, it's really, it's quite extraordinary. Um, and he said, so I always bring a couple of homies with me to talk, and they get up and they tell their story. Um, and he said, so we were flying to go to um, uh, a long flight, and I took a couple of homies this um, who were from different gangs i'd like to get the, mix them up you know because um, and one of them um, worked at the bakery, uh, and the other one, let me see where is they uh, uh, worked in the worked in their store, their shop that they sell homeboy stuff, and they got to the airport they 'd never flown they were terrified, and so we 're looking out the window and two of the flight attendants are going up the steps with the uh, cups of Starbucks coffee, and I said, well, must be, pretty Pretty soon it'll be time to take off because they're trying to sober up the pilot. He said, I know that wasn't fair to say to these guys, but anyway, they get on the plane, they get there. He said, I just, you know, you gotta mess with them sometime. And, they, and he says, all right, it's a thousand people, psychologists and social workers in this major city, um, mm-hmm. And I want you to tell your stories first and then I'll talk about how I work. Um, and so they get there, Mario and Bobby, and they were both nervous. Their accounts moved people very deeply because their stories were of filled with violence, abandonment, abuse, torture, homelessness of every kind. Honest to God, if their stories had been flamed, flames, you'd have to keep your distance, otherwise you'd get scorched. So this is really the work he's thrown himself into. Um, So um, they spoke before me um, and then before I presented because I wanted to include them I asked if anyone there had any questions for these guys. They were both nervous. And once things quieted down a woman raised her hand she had a question for Mario and he started to quake like how do I do this? Yes he said he sa- she said, "Your father, you've been at homeboys for eight years or nine years. Your son and daughter are starting to reach their teenage years. What wisdom do you impart to them? I mean, what advice do you give them?" And Mario was silent and trembled and closed his eyes and blurted out, "I just..." and he couldn't say anything more for a long time. And finally, he looked at her as if pleading and said, "I just..." I just don't want my kids to turn out to be like me. And his words felt squeezed out. And his sobbing was now more pronounced. The woman was silent. No one said anything, just as you're being silent. She stood up again. Now it was her turn to cry. And she pointed to him. And her voice, quite certain, through her tears said, Mario, why wouldn't you want your kids to turn out to be like you? You are gentle, you are kind, he was known as being a gentleman at homeboys. You are loving, you are wise. She planted herself firmly, I hope your kids turn out like you. And there wasn't much of a pause before all 1,000 attendees stood up and began to clap The ovation seemed to have no end. All Mario could do was hold his face in his hands, overwhelmed with emotion. What Father Greg has done is to tend the seeds of goodness in these young people that come to see him. And he does it over and over, and if they fail, he says, then come back when you're ready to try again. And this is what our human life is about, to direct ourselves towards something that has some nobility to it, that's honorable and moving to our own heart and beautiful, to plant those seeds and stay connected with them. Now the great thing is that you have good seeds to plant. That is born in you. And as Henry David Thoreau says, Though I do not believe a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me you have a seed there, and I'm prepared to expect wonders. And you have in you the seeds of great compassion. You have in you the seeds of wisdom, the seeds of of kinship with life, of care for others. And meditation then isn't to make some special experience because you sit and you get, everything happens. But it's to learn how to tend this garden of your own humanity um, and to water the seeds of kindness, to water the seeds of presence, to water the seeds of attention and and care, um, to water those seeds that are the most beautiful in your own heart. As the bee gathers nectar and perfume from the flower without marring its beauty so let the wise one move through this world harming none and bringing blessings to all when you tend the seeds in your garden and the flowers and the fruits and the vegetables bloom you become like that image of the bee tending what's beautiful bringing forth in yourself and those around you what you value, um, without harm. Now here's another really important thing to keep in mind for spiritual practice. The idea is not to make a perfect garden. You know one of those photos in House and Garden, the coolest garden in Marin County or something like that, which it's sort of like all the photos on the covers of magazines of models, the most handsome or beautiful human being you've ever seen taken in the best light and then touched up. You know, nobody looks like that. You know that's true. You know, and no garden looks like that except on that day when everything's taken out and they get the photographers and the light right. That is not the point on a spring day in the best angle. They don't show you the compost pile and the weeds and the things like that. Um, but to take, you know, we have these ideas of how it should be. I remember this cartoon, two little fish swimming in the water. One says to the other, I want the whole thing, the glass bowl, the little white castle, the blue pebbles, right? You know, I mean, we have these ideas, they're crazy about how it should be, right? Right? Instead of trying to make an ideal of your life, which you've already failed, you know that. We all have. Let's be serious about it. As then Master Ryokan said, last year a foolish monk, this year no change, right? <laughs> so here you are. The idea isn't to make a perfect garden, but to take your perfectly human circumstance, your emotions, your thoughts, your body, for better and for worse, and bodies are always for better and for worse. Figure it out, right, in your mind. To take your, and your relationships, oh my God, right, and your family. Remember, Buddha and Jesus had trouble when they went back to their family too, so just keep that in mind. Um, To take your perfectly human circumstance and use that for wakefulness and compassion and steadiness and letting go and learning to trust. There's no other place to do it, no other way to do it. So, let's see. Alan Chadwick was a famous gardener at the UC Santa Cruz um, who was one of the founders of the modern environmental movement. and um, He gardened by growing soil to grow plants. And what he meant by soil was different from the earth's surface that you or I usually mean. I think he meant the power in the universe that could be concentrated in garden to capture cosmic magic. Chadwick grew soil and planted seas based on relationships that existed between the earth, its moon, the sun, the other planets, the weather, the way doves in the area coo, the mist in the trees, and everything you could imagine. When winter was bleak, he'd sing about the energies underneath the surface of the earth, Underneath, the seeds are full of life. This very moment, the seeds are waking up. They're pushing up to the sun. The doves are singing, coo, coo, life. Once Professor Chadwick took his class to a junkyard lot that was full of rusted out cars, broken glass, chunks of cement, sand, and lots of abandoned trash. He asked the owner of his class could use the lot for an experiment to grow flowers and vegetables. The owner said, sure, but you're crazy, that soil's dead. The garden later became famous for its extraordinarily delicious vegetables and gorgeous flowers. This is the tending that you can do in your own life, moment by moment, person by person. And it's not about being idealistic, as my teacher in the monastery would say on a super-hot sweltering day or a freezing cold day or a day when we got very little food in our alms bowl. He said, ah, conditions are perfect for awakening. (laughs) They are. Now you don't want to try so hard. It's not about striving. It's really about tending. You don't like pull the leaves of the flower open for it to blossom. You water it. You tend it. You let the sun shine on it. Especially in this time of managed care, more emphasis seems to be placed upon medication and the quick amelioration of symptoms, short-term work, and profit, privatized profit-making clinics, than upon the lovely and mysterious alchemy that comprises the healing cords between and within people the cords that soothe our terrors and help us to be whole. That's from Lauren Slater. And it's true in medicine. There's something that needs to be tended in addition to the body that we know about. you know. And it's true in our relationships. It's true in the society in which we live. So it's not about making it some kind of grim duty. But actually it's an act of love. And that's kind of the game. In the end, if your spiritual practice isn't an act of love, it's somehow gone down the wrong track. It's planted the wrong garden. So you get comfortable with your life. This is what you got. I mean, you can change it. You can change your job, you can change where you live and so forth. But the big change that needs to be tended is really the change in the heart. Because wherever you go, there will be people that are difficult. You know they're waiting for you, <laughs> mm. right? And yet the teachings are an invitation to freedom of heart. The text begins: Swakato bhagavata dhammo Sanditiko agaliko ehi pasiko upanayiko paṭatangve titabhuin yuhiti. The Dharma is an invitation to freedom. It's immediate, here and now. Um, open-handed, offered to all a freedom that can be found only and just where you are. Now what's also true as you sit, as you practice is you can't measure it very well. How am I doing? You know, some days you think you're doing splendidly and then something happens and you feel like you're the great spiritual failure, right? And, and, and then you tell stories about it. But it's more like being on a boat on the ocean. Um, you know, if you're on a river, you watch the shore go by, but if you're out on the ocean, you actually can't tell exactly where you are and there is no spiritual GPS. I'm sorry to tell you about this. Instead, what you get to do wherever you are is tend your garden is plant the beautiful seeds. This from Wendell Berry, our great poet and environmentalist, he writes, so my friends, every day, do something that won't compute. Love the world. Work out of love for nothing. Love someone who doesn't deserve it. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. And go with your love to the fields and lie down in the shade and rest your head. Plant sequoias, you know, that take a thousand years to grow majestic. So there you are. You can't tell how you're doing. I mean, if you really want to know, you could, of course, ask the people in your family, but that's another story. Um, You can't tell how you're doing. What you'll see is... Tension and difficulty in your body because you have a physical body and also potential to live with this body in a healthy and beautiful way. But it will have pain. Anybody not have pain? You can have your money back, (laughs) right? It's just you get suffering along with joy in this life. This is human incarnation, you know? And then you notice the judging mind and the doubting mind and the frightened mind and the angry mind, and there's praise and blame and gain and loss. This is the working stuff of a human incarnation. Don't tell too many stories about it. Name it. Water the beautiful seeds. Let the other ones go by. It's not that complicated. Water the seeds of love, of compassion, or presence. Because your stories are likely going to be inaccurate. Uh, And likely, I would underline. I remember at the end of a retreat we had down in, in Joshua Tree in Yucca Valley, we used this wonderful retreat center, Institute of Mental Physics, for 38 years. And there was a woman who left the retreat. She told me this story later, and she went to the Palm Springs airport. And um, she got a bag of her favorite chocolate chip cookies that they sold at one of the market stores there. And she went to the waiting area of her gate and sat down. There were a bunch of seats and little tables, every three or four seats. And she put her cookies and her stuff down and he sat there for a while just looking at her phone or whatever you do on an airport these days and then um, she noticed that the guy next to her was opening her bag of cookies that <laughs> was like really weird and he took one out and he ate it and he looked at her as he did it And he tipped the bag to her like, you want one too? (laughs) And she like, okay, I don't know about this, you know. And so without saying any words, but feeling really strange, he ate a cookie and she ate a cookie like, what is happening here, right? And she was somewhat upset by it. But okay, uh, come from a retreat, you know, I'll be compassionate (laughs) uh, and so forth. So then it was time to get on the plane. The cookies were gone. She got her stuff. She settled into her seat. And as she was putting her stuff away, she opened her purse. And there was her bag of cookies. <laughs> yeah. You know. Don't put too much stock in the stories you tell about yourself in the world. There's always another point of view. Yeah. And then you see, you are the Buddha, but you're embarrassed Buddha, you know, chagrin Buddha, foolish Buddha, as Ryokan said, you know, this year no change. You're happy Buddha and sad Buddha, sun Buddha, moon Buddha. You contain all of these. And you rest in the mystery of being alive, this amazing thing, that you have this life, and you get to shape it. You get to make something beautiful out of it. And I think that's why, in a certain way, why people have helped to build this place at Spirit Rock, um, not as a monument to something, but really as a place just that's a reminder of how magnificent you are and what you can be and what beautiful seeds you can plant and how you can tend them. And that you can trust this. Pablo Neruda says, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. There's some life force that wants to renew us. And even in the body politic, which seems so divisive now, and in many ways destructive, um, and worse than that, um, at times it feels like we are, um, instead of as... As as Lincoln said, you know, with malice toward none and charity toward all, it's almost reversing it. That we're dividing those who are valued and those who are vulnerable and are not valued and throwing, them, and throwing them out of our hearts and out of our willingness to be in communion. And yet, we are in communion. Every breath you take is breathed by all those other people. Every breath you take, as I say came over the Pacific and dusted and Mauna Kea and Manaloa, and before that it dusted the Fukushima nuclear reactor. We are in this one together. This, this is our family. <sighs> Pablo Neruda, so beautiful. But if you plant seeds, then something good will come. As Thoreau said, I don't know how long it will take, but I'm prepared to expect miracles and wonders. Pablo Nuda also wrote another line for spring. It was one of his love poems. He said, I want to do with you what spring does to the cherry trees. How's that for a little romantic line? <laughs> you know, thank you. Yeah. So Kathy Sneed, this is some years ago, started the prison garden project um in the 1980s, um, she was concerned for the soul death of so many people who've been incarcerated. Um, You know, we have the, um, sadly, we have these enormous racist poverty prisons that if you're born in the wrong place or the wrong race or wrong skin color or something, the likelihood is you're gonna end up in prison and not for doing much. So she began a project in the San Francisco City and County Jail, which is a pretty big establishment, Um, and men were invited to grow vegetables in a garden plot behind one of the prison buildings, which had been there from the decades before when there had been a prison garden. Through fundraising, she was able to offer them seedlings and mulch fertilizer and simple garden tools. To be able to grow a garden with their own hands, to be responsible for its blossoming, to overcome insects and drought, brought out the best in these thrown away people. It awakened a connection to and caring for something outside of themselves. Kathy tells about one macho giant saying, don't step on my babies as he walked through the garden. The prison wardens were amazed by the change. The gardens became so important to those who cared for these patches that their lives began to revolve around them. In fact, when time came for these men to be released from prison, some purposefully recommitted petty crimes or violated parole so they could get back to their gardens. That's when Kathy realized that she needed to start a garden project for ex-prisoners, which she did. You know. Do not judge me by my successes, says Nelson Mandela. Judge me by how many times I fell down and got back up again. Tend your garden, you know, in a way that's beautiful. Choose the seeds. Even as we speak, as you listen tonight, you know what the seeds are that you really would most want to plant in this incarnation and in this life. And then water them with your attention with your dedication, with your devotion. And with a blessing from John O'Donohue, wonderful poet. He writes, On the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, may the clay dance to balance you. And when your eyes freeze behind the gray window and the ghost of loss gets into you, May a flock of colors, indigo, red, green, and azure blue, come to awaken in you a meadow of delight. When the canvas frays in the crock of thought and a stain of ocean blackens beneath you, may there come across the waters a path of yellow moonlight to bring you safely home. May the nourishment of the earth be yours, May the clarity of light be yours. May the fluency of the ocean be yours. And may the protection of the ancestors be yours. And so may a slow wind work these words of love around you. An invisible cloak to tend your life. Let's sit. One more thing, a reflection that came as we were sitting quietly. You don't just water your own seeds, you know. Um, There are gardens next to yours that could be also quite beautiful. And you have water to spare, I know you do, even though we still need some rain. And the world needs you to also water the seeds of goodness, of compassion, a presence, of dedication around you. The society needs it, whether it's raising conscious children or creating a conscious business or standing up for justice um, or standing for the vulnerable or tending them, you know. But to do so in a way that waters the beauty in them and the best in them, as Nelson Mandela said, it never hurts to think the best of someone. They often act the better because of it to really seek out your ways to water the seeds of goodness and make a difference both in your own heart and in all that you touch in the world. So uh, enjoy the spring and thank you for coming and drive politely out there. There's lots of cars and people and things like that and um, hope to see you again.